0: so today i want to talk about socially conscious christianity and it is a, a a recent moniker that i have started using to um to identify sort of this this type of christianity that we seek to propagate here at city point And many other churches around the world do as well that stands in distinction from another kind of Christianity that we see. And so it is a a phrase that I have started using, and I want to officially use it in preaching today. I want to kick this off with a quote from Frederick Douglass. also want to say, happy Liberation Day, happy Juneteenth. Amen. Um... Hold on, Las Vegas just walked up in here. Hold on a second. Monique and Eric just came in here like like y'all was here last Sunday. Um, Give it up for them. They are in town, obviously, from Las Vegas, members of City Point, and have been connecting from a distance. It's really good to see y'all. Looking flying your champion shirts like y'all about to go to Great America after this. Up in here matching. All right, um, so I want to kick off with this quote from Frederick Douglass. This is from um, the, uh, Frederick, the slave narrative by Frederick Douglass, um, or in another term, The Life of an American Slave by Frederick Douglass. But you won't find it in the book. It's in the appendix to it. Here's what he says. It's interesting about religion. He says, what I have said, respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference, so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land, bars. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I want to talk again about socially conscious Christianity, socially conscious Christianity, how many of you have seen the Spider-Man meme where the two Spider-Men are pointing at one another? So I did some research and I found out that this Spider-Man meme is from an episode from the 1967 Spider-Man season. It's actually episode 19. The original context of it is that this in, in this image is the villain that is in this episode has decided to dress up as Spider-Man, that the two of them confront each other and point at one another. And so when you look at that screenshot, the viewer is left with the puzzling challenge of identifying among these two similar looking characters, which one of them is the real Spider-Man. They both look identical, that they actually look exactly the same. Which one of them is the real Spider-Man? It is tough to tell on the surface which is the real thing and which of them is simply masquerading as the real thing. We are left wondering which is the real Spider-Man. But so it is with Christianity. It feels like in America we are cosplaying, reenacting this scene, this meme from Spider-Man. Two wings of the church claiming to be the true representation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of them loving justice. One of them socially responsibly living. One of them are about the uplift of the least of these and building a society that is based on fairness and equal access to all. The other one is nationalistic. Uh, Worshiping God, the Bible, the flag, and guns, all with equal fervor and equal allegiance. One believing that we're all made in the image of God, but, but the other believing that whiteness and maleness is the very expressed image of God and all you other people are deviations from that standard. One of them believing in cooperation, in social safety nets, in sharing resources, in not exploiting the environment and not exploiting the poor, but the other seemingly believing that on the eighth day, God created capitalism. And so we sit in suspense, or better yet, tension in this country, uncertain which is the true form of Christianity. Christianity. Which of the costumed movements is really the church? and which of them is a villain that is masquerading? That there were crosses yesterday at the Poor People's Campaign March as people marched for voting rights and support for low-wage workers. But I noticed that there were also crosses at the January 6th insurrection. As people storm the Capitol screaming, hang Mike Pence. There were crosses at both times. And so I raised the question, which of these is indeed Christianity? In the words of Frederick Douglass, which of these is the Christianity of Christ? I think there is no better place to uncover this answer of identity than to look at Christ himself. Because as Christ begins his ministry, I raise the question, how does he identify his movement and the purpose behind this movement that he started? What does he say that his mission is all about? Who does he say that his mission is for? And what does he say that his mission is seeking to accomplish? I want y'all to go with me to Luke Because Luke's vantage point as he writes about the Christian movement hits a little bit differently than Matthew and the others. Luke sees and recalls this Christian movement as being deeply social, as being deeply for the uplift of the peasant class, and deeply committed to this thing called liberation. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, Luke says, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, I don't think you guys have this, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I want to argue today that the only true form of Christianity is what I call socially conscious Christianity. That the forms of Christianity that are purely individualistic, the forms of Christianity that do not concern themselves with the uplift of the poor, that are not anti-oppression, that are not freedom and justice loving, those are not the Christianity of Christ, which is socially conscious Christianity. Luke is responsible for writing both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. His is one of four gospels, but again, there is a distinction in Luke's gospel narrative. As Luke is writing to a person who appears to be uh, some government official, some person of nobility that he identifies as the most excellent theophilus, Luke makes the case to him that Jesus and likewise Jesus' movement wasn't just a spiritual one. Now, nah, it was not just a spiritual movement, it was a political movement, and it was also a social movement. In other words, it did not simply have implications for the souls of people. But this movement of Jesus Christ made serious claims on how systems should operate, on how governments should treat people, on how society should be constructed, and how people should relate to one another. It even made claims on who the real king was. In the midst of an emperor-worshipping society, Luke dares to make the claim that Jesus is the true king. He is the true king, not of simply the Roman Empire, but of another kingdom. It's called the kingdom of God. And he says that this kingdom has a different ethic to it a different value system that it uh, agrees with, a different way of doing things, and this kingdom's reign was now beginning. Yet yeah, Luke's gospel is revolutionary. It talks about reversing the social order of things, things shifting like the last becoming first and the first becoming last. It talks about the poor being blessed, and it goes so far as to pronounce woes against the rich. Think about the Beatitudes for a minute in Luke chapter 6. Luke writes that Jesus said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And then he gets down to verse 24 and he says, but woe to you who are rich. For you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers treated the false prophets back in the day the same way. Even when we look at Mary's Magnificat or Mary's song that she sang when she found out that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, even when you look at that, Luke gives a social tone to it. Luke chapter 1, verse 52 and 53, it says, God has brought down the powerful from their thrones, this is Mary talking, and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. What Luke communicates to us throughout this gospel, as well as through Acts, is that there is something socially, politically, and ethically different about this Christian movement. What it is that is different is that it is radically, socially conscious. That, that this is not a get-all-you-can-get, be-in-it-for-yourself kind of religion. That, that ain't what you're signing up for. No, no, this is a communal, care for one another, correct the plight of the least of these kind of religion. And so when we come to chapter 4, we get to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his first sermon, if you will, he kicks off with not just his favorite scripture, but he kicks off with one that afterward he says, today this scripture is, is being fulfilled. He uses a scripture that is deeply social. And so on this liberation morning, I submit to you, There are three things that we see as we look at Jesus' words that lead me to this conclusion that Christianity, that true Christianity, is socially conscious Christianity. First of all, when we look at this text, we see that his was a mission against poverty. It was a mission against poverty. Jesus said that the Spirit had anointed him to proclaim good news to the poor. I raised the question this morning, what is it that is particularly good news for the poor? Uh, Some will attempt to over-spiritualize this statement. But when I think about it, I I cannot accept nor believe that Jesus goes to his poverty-stricken hometown, shows up in the synagogue on the Sabbath, reads a scripture, to make a cruel suggestion that the news that is particularly good to poor folks is merely that they will receive spiritual benefits. There's nothing special about that for the poor. Anybody can get that. It's not particularly good news to me when I'm poor that I'm receiving some spiritual benefits. I believe that this Such an interpretation is an attempt to simply placate the poor. I think that it is to try to make them feel that somehow there is virtue in suffering. That there is somehow virtue in the injustices that have rendered them poor. To effectively tell the poor, keep on glorying in your suffering because you're going to be rewarded in a sweet by and by. Let me say that the Christianity of Christ I believe it's not only concerned about whether or not we have a home in heaven. But it is also deeply concerned with whether or not we have a home to lay our heads in on earth. We see this play out in the book of Acts as the early church demonstrated that they were not just concerned with the spiritual well-being, with the sweet by and by, with the spiritual wealth of people. But when there was material lack within the Christian community, what did they do? They pulled together their resources and they helped those that were struggling. This is a demonstration that their interpretation of what it means to what it means to be Christian, what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God was not simply spiritual. It was also material. Well, I believe that the good news that Jesus said that he had been anointed to proclaim to the poor wasn't merely spiritual, but instead it is the introduction of a new kingdom with a new ethic, with a new social system. This kingdom would not be a kingdom in a political sense that it had elected officials or a king who would reign by brute force, but no, instead, this kingdom would not be subject to affronts by competing empires. It would have no end to its reign. No, this kind of kingdom would not have borders. But anybody could become a subject to this kingdom. This kingdom is the kingdom of God. Another way that one scholar has put it and talked about it is that it is the kingdom of God. As one scholar put it, the kingdom of God where effectively we are entering into a deep kind of kinship with each other, where we share with one another such that poverty is replaced with the care and the safety net that is provided by everybody for everybody. This is good news to the poor. The good news to the poor is that this kingdom carries the ethic that no longer relies on exploitation of poor people is instead concerned with everybody getting a piece of the pie. And so I want to raise the question this morning. As a Christian, are you anti-poverty or are you anti-poor? Because to be anti-poverty is to be against all things that causes the conditions that make people poor. Lack of access to equal and quality education. That'll make you poor. Lack of access to healthy food and nutrition or food at all and lack of access to health care. That'll keep you poor. Lack of access to jobs unencumbered by gender discrimination or racial discrimination or discrimination based on your physical abilities. Policies that funnel the access to the public goods and the public wealth to the people at the top. So we need to give some money to Walmart so they can open up in a neighborhood, but not to the people in the neighborhood that are starving. And maybe, just maybe, Walmart might give out a few dozen minimum wage jobs to the people where they will still have to rely on other people for food stamps and housing assistance, but we needed that Walmart. Yeah. Lack of access, lack of access. To be anti-poverty is to be against the things that make people poor. But let me say that to be anti-poor is a whole different thing. And that's what some people are. There are far too many Christians that are more anti-poor than anti-poverty. That see poor people as a nuisance. That believe that poverty should be criminalized. That if a person is homeless and in their neighborhood, we want to call the police on them. Because how dare they be walking around our neighborhood, our block, looking dirty and dusty and unkept. And so their dirty, dusty, unkeptness makes them suspicious because they're in our neighborhood. Or or their physical presence anywhere is a problem to us that needs to be dealt with by calling our customer service police line. Yeah, when I'm anti-poor, I'm more concerned with the ugliness of camps of homeless people, tent camps of homeless people in Chicago. But but I'm concerned with it for aesthetic reasons. I I don't like the way it looks. I don't like the way it impacts my property value. When you're anti-poor, that's your approach. Rather than being concerned that some human beings had to live like that last night, in one of the wealthiest countries that the world has ever seen, in one of the biggest cities in our country, in one of the richest countries in the world, that there are tent camps of people that slept outside in squalor last night because we as a society didn't have the collective moral courage to ensure that there is at least basics like housing for everybody. I agree with those who believe that housing is a human right, a human right. All land cannot be owned by everybody. Some has to just be for people to be able to inhabit simply because they are human beings. And our world has not always been organized this way. But it is organized in such a way that from the moment you come out of the womb, you have to be on a track, on a path to getting educated, to getting a job, to chasing after money, plenty of money nowadays just to be able to place a roof over your head. In this city, if you ain't got $1,000 at least a month, you can't even live, period, anywhere but the streets. We effectively have an anti-poor society, and we've got to construct a different ethic. Let me move on. Not only that, but his was a mission against oppression. His was a a mission against oppression. Dr. King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. He said, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. What affects one directly affects all indirectly. Yes, to be anti-oppression is to honor the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the very active words that Jesus uses here. It is not simply enough to care for the oppressed in a way that helps to alleviate our middle-class guilt. Now, the mission of Jesus, and likewise his followers, has to be the full liberation of anybody that is oppressed. As he says in the text, his mission is to set the oppressed free. Yes, the Christian faith demands that we not allow freedom to be a luxury afforded to some when it is a right endowed by the creator on everybody. Let me rush this thing along. The third thing that I see in the text is that Jesus' mission, his, was a mission against exploitation and captivity. There's a strange similarity So in the text, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit had the Spirit of the Lord had anointed him to uh, proclaim freedom for the captives or the prisoners to set the prisoners free. There's this strange similarity between the prison system of first century Palestine in which Luke writes and Jesus speaks, and the one that we have twenty one centuries later here in America. In that day, people were put to death for capital offenses. And so they were not in prison for things like murder. So when you think about it, the people that were in prison were actually in prison for pettier stuff. One of the petty things that they were in prison for was simply debt. Effectively, in that day, as in this one, poverty was criminalized. Today, America leads the world not in educational attainment, not in quality of living for its citizens, not in health outcomes and lifespan. It leads the world in imprisonment per capita. But as I think about these statistics, I think about the words of our Lord in Luke chapter 4 ringing in my ear. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner. We live in a carceral state where so many people have been marginalized from our society that we have created collectively together, and we say on our money, God bless America, and people get on campaign trails, and they give their speeches, and they always want to end, God bless you all, and God bless the United States of America. We claim this connection to God yet. We imprison people to make money and it has just been normalized. We got police in schools where kids go from being suspended to being in jail. What is this? We celebrate liberation and freedom today but we are literally marginally free. Those of us that are middle class and upper class we enjoy a little bit more of it. But man that there is a way that the other side has to live because of their black bodies. We, in some ways, to excuse the expression, are house niggas. We have greater proximity to the master's goods and have not identified that we are in bondage too because we ain't them niggas in the field suffering. In a bad economy, they suffer. In a great economy, they are suffering. Trillions have been made since the pandemic. And if you go 20 blocks south, those that were broke when it started are broke right now. A little over 3.5% unemployment, but those numbers do not apply to our people. Those that could not get a job before, when the economy was bad, still can't get one. And we, and, and, and we wonder, flabbergasted, Why the shooting and why the killing and why the carjacking? What do you do when you have no hope? What else do you do but take when all that society around you has done to you is take? What else do you do is rob and steal and kill when that is effectively what is left for you to be able to feed yourself and feed your family? It's sad that ain't a whole lot changed since Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five said, it's like a jungle sometimes. It make me wonder how I keep from going under. Forty years have passed and not much has changed. And perhaps we got here not simply because our problems are social, but because our problems are theological is because we see Jesus wrong. We see God wrong, and we see what it means to be a Christian wrongly. And this thing has been for the last 20 years so much about the come up and health and wealth, and I can just speak things with my mouth, and stuff will change in my life, and a whole lot of black wealth has disappeared off of that foolishness, money laid at the altar so that I'm in charge, and I'm 41, so I'm just going to talk like I want to talk. So niggas could buy Bentleys and airplanes and stuff like that while our people have suffered. Our problems are are not merely social. Our problems are theological. If we can change how we view God and what we believe God demands of us, then we can begin to create something different and be bothered. If we were as deeply convicted by marginal things, if we were as deeply con- convicted by things like poverty, homelessness, oppression, mass incarceration, if we were as deeply convicted about that as we were about trivial things like who had a baby before they were married and, and, and who's dating who and sleeping with who, And what women can do with their own, what grown women can do with their own bodies. Because I I hear, I, I hear Jesus saying things like, you will say to me, when did I see you homeless? When did I see you hungry? When did I see you imprisoned and do nothing? And he will say, away from me. And he will say, whatever you did to the least of these, you did also to me. It seems to me that he is deeply concerned about these things. And even when he is confronted with the trivial, like, adultery, like, he is taking a position that all y'all hypocritical, let this lady go on about her business, drop the rocks. Some of y'all been trying to get at her anyway. Let's move on with our day. We we see him confronting matters of sexuality a bit trivially, and he is constantly confronting issues of hypocrisy when it comes to how we treat each other and deal with each other as human beings. And so let me get off my soapbox. I figured it's Juneteenth, so y'all would at least give me space to be on my Justice soapbox today. Let me close by quoting Dr. King. You guys have heard me say this in another sermon, but let me close. I want to do it again. Uh, But a twist on what he said about freedom ring. Let freedom ring in every ghetto, in every barrio, in the non-unionized workplaces of middle America, and in the fruit fields where the undocumented pick our fruits in the Southwest. Let freedom ring in the wage protests of those that are fighting for a living wage, where they can feed their kids and put a roof over their heads with dignity if they can just get $15 an hour. Let freedom ring in the activist marches demanding the abolition of this current American policing system, where we can somehow find a way in this city to direct A billion in COVID money to policing, but could not use it to provide a social safety net for folks that were risking their freedom to steal a mattress after George Floyd. Let freedom ring. Let it ring ring in the seedy dark corners where the innocent are sex trafficked and let it ring where the marginalized are being stripped of their rights to vote. Letting and making freedom ring is the duty of every Christian. And in the words of Jesus Christ, let us work the works of him who sent us while it is day. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for confronting us with Christianity, what it is and what it ain't. Thank you for showing us that there is a a wing of it that is masquerading. That is a villain in Christian costume, pretending to follow the way of Christ. Get us back on track, God, to care about what you care about. To not be preoccupied with what grown people are doing in their bedrooms to not be preoccupied with people's sexuality or their orientation, to not be preoccupied with those things that are more trivial. But these weighty matters, we have a society where people struggle and suffer and they don't have to. Lord, forgive us of our apathy Forgive us of the ways that we have been anti-poor instead of anti-poverty. Help us never be able to drive down canal street and see homeless people and feel the same. Help us to to never pass another underpass and see tents and squalor and turn up our nose rather than be wrenched in our hearts. Calling out like the sinners did What must I do? What must I do to make this better? How must I vote to make this better? Who must I hold accountable to make this better? How must I use my seat at the table to make this better? What must I do to be saved? Help us to understand that salvation is not merely individualistic, it's collective. We're all in this together. Help us, Lord. Help us so that one day Juneteenth will really celebrate true freedom, full freedom, not just for those of us who have been able to escape, but for everybody in every neighborhood, in every hood. Help us, God. God, we thank you for the ways that you have made for the progress that we have made help us to acknowledge that we've gotten so we've got so far to go. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Won't you praise God for his word?